I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. As ever, your host, Matt Dixon, and today we talk about a single word, performance. That word is the heartbeat of this show, and so it makes sense. But we're going to dig in with a very special guest, the one and only Brad Stolberg. Brad's not only a longtime friend of mine, he's also the best-selling author of three books, Peak Performance, The Passion Paradox, and The Practice of Groundedness. He's also the co-owner of The Growth Equation, along with elite running coach Steve Magnus. Brad has traveled an amazing personal journey navigating OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder, but emerging to be a leading voice in high-end performance. From world-class athletes to market maker CEOs, Brad provides great wisdom and insights. And so, of course, we're delighted to have him join us on the show. So on the show today, we're not just going to go and do a nice book review of The Practice of Groundedness, which I will say is a super book and is a must read for any performance minded enthusiast. But instead, Brad and I have what we label a coach's talk. We hit on some key topics, performance, the key to patience so that you can find your quickest high performance, making sure that you can create sustainable and predictable performance, the importance of community and going on this journey together. How can we help our children flourish and thrive? And digging into the perils of what Brad labels heroic individualism, something that drives many high performers, but ultimately can also hold them back. I promise you this is fun, it's inspiring, and of course, it's insightful. Now, it was such a meaty discussion that we said, you know what, we need to have a break. Only to have a little cigarette behind the bike sheds. No, we're making this into a two-parter. So today we're excited to present to you part one. Now, before we get into this, if I could ask, this is, I stand up, this is a gem of an episode. And I would love it to reach as many folk as possible. So when you listen to today's show, if you think, well, that was pretty fun, can't wait for part two next week, Please, please, please share it with anyone that you think might enjoy it or, of course, benefit from it. And while we're here, hey, why don't you do something nice for us? Why don't you help other people find our podcast? We would greatly appreciate it if you would leave a positive review wherever you listen to the show. All right. So now we've got something new this week. So we're going to have to dive in together, holding hands to the Squatty Update. Yes, the squatty update. So let me ask you, do you enjoy listening to the show? I hope so. I love that you find the education helpful. But one thing we continually hear from people is, I'd love to ask my own questions. Can Matt answer A, B, and C? Well, guess what? Now you can. We are planning an upcoming show. Let's label it for now, Ask Matt Anything. Now, those questions, I'm not going to answer things like what color is your underwear or well, perhaps I would. But the truth is, this is your chance to ask any question that you have 
under the big banner of performance. Yes, for the first time that we do an Ask Matt Anything show, we're going to keep it pretty broad. Ask Me Anything. It just has to fit under the banner of performance, a wild and free topic for you. How do I do this? Well, it's very simple. You can either head to the show notes or directly to the podcast page on the Purple Patch website. That's purplepatchfitness.com. Head to the podcast page and you're going to see a nice, shiny new feature. And what that is, is a opportunity for you to record a nice voicemail to me. Now, what we need is your first name, location, and a short and succinct question. It cannot be more than 90 seconds. And what we will do is we will listen to them, choose the best ones, and then play your question on the show. And of course, I will respond, dig in, and try and provide some insights, some guidance, some education. So get to it. Any question that you have. We do need to have your first name and location so we can make it personal. And of course, we need a recording. But if you prefer to stay muted, you can always ping us on the form that's embedded on that feature as well. And it just goes direct to email. We're happy to read out your question on your behalf. So that's the Squatty update this week. It's a lot of fun. I can't wait to hear your questions. And so get to it. Head to the podcast page or the show notes, and we will listen to your thoughts. Good stuff. All right. So before we get going, we're just going to do a little detour. We're going to do a little bit of insight for something that I think is valuable. We're going to talk about Inside Tracker. You see, with Inside Tracker, the real purpose is much less about helping athletes find that final one or 2%. How do we actually get to the razor's edge? This thing isn't magic dust. Whether you're a high-end athlete or you're just a life performance enthusiast, the way that we leverage Inside Tracker is to help you gain longevity, to enable you to do the things that you love both better but also for longer. We're in it for the long game. And by utilizing the program, we're able to gain focus, insights, and actionable steps to help you perform. And so whether it's about performance for sport, performance for work, or performance for life, so much that we talk about today with Brad lines up exactly with the insights and mindsets that we get from Inside Tracker. So why don't you take the first step to magnify your own performance, not for the short term, but for the long term? Head to InsideTracker.com slash Purple Patch Podcast. That's InsideTracker.com Purple Patch Podcast. Throw in the code. Purple Patch Pro 25, that's Purple Patch Pro 25, and you get 25% off the whole store. Now, you can always amplify this with a Purple Patch Coaching Consult, but just come directly to us for that, and we will partner with you to make sure that you can implement the findings into your own program. All you need to do is head to the Purple Patch website, book a consultation, or of course, email us directly, info at purplepatchfitness.com. Okay, with that, let's not delay. This week, there is no word of the week. Two reasons. Number one, Barry has calluses and struggles with the small ukulele strings. When he has such a thing, don't ask how he got them. And besides, this is such a meaty topic today that we just want to get cracking. And so, author, performance expert, friend, I give you the conversation with Brad Stolberg. It is the meat and potatoes.
All right, yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is the meat and potatoes. And today, a discussion that I am excited about. I'm welcoming back an old friend. And now I can safely say an expert in performance. Brad Stolberg, welcome to the show. I wonder why you couldn't safely say it before. Uh, it's good to be it's good to be back, uh, old friend. Nice to see you, Matt. Oh, it's a pleasure to oh, be joining old you. Friend, old friend as well. We've gone through a parallel journey of our um, professional career, but obviously known each other for a long, long time with another mate of ours, uh, Steve Magnus, obviously the running coach. But it is so lovely to to have you back and uh, to see you and chat to you. And how have been? How have you been? Have you been well? Yes, thank you for asking. Things have been things have been as good as they can be given the the craziness of the pandemic uh, and having a young kid who's playing whack-a-mole with school. But we've got our health, we've got our career, um, so we're 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 feeling very fortunate. That's great. And as I uh, as I talked about in the introduction to today's show, three-time author and uh, peak performance, passion paradox, and now the practice of groundedness. And I'm sure as I, well, I've actually seen you go around on quote the tour with your latest book, but I asked you on today, on today's show to, to really focus around a single word and that's performance. And it's the very same word that is the heartbeat of this show globally. And I can't think of anyone else to dig into that word. And, and I say the word performance knowing that it can mean really different things to different people. It can be the journey to world-class sports performance or the successful completion of a marathon or another sporting goal. It might be a, a busy executive achieving to sustain high performance for themselves or their teams that they guide, and we'll dig into that today. Or even a busy parent looking to amplify health, energy, etc. But um, you get the picture. We are going to go wide. We're going to seek themes. And uh, I think it's going to be exciting. Now, we could talk for three hours. We're going to try and keep it to under an hour. But what we've plotted out in our little framework, it goes pretty broad. And uh, and I think it will be fun. So firstly, and we're going to try and truncate this a little bit. We're going to try and keep this quick and dirty. But I think it's important for the listeners to frame who you are beyond obviously your persona as uh, on the cover of the books, et cetera. Uh, and we do this with every guest, but we're going to try and go through this fast so that we can really get into the meat and potatoes of the discussion today. So I'd, I'd love to know a little bit about you growing up, family, siblings, school, and, and your childhood. So I grew up in a small town called Farmington Hills. It's about 45 minutes outside of Detroit. Um, two parents who stayed married, very fortunate. Um, a brother that is four years my junior, a public school kid, was a all-region, all not all-state, somewhere between all-region and all-state football player in, in high school, had all sorts of offers to play uh, small D1, bigger, more competitive D2, D3. In the end, chose to go to University of Michigan, where I could not play football, so I was there purely as a student. Um got very much into endurance sports in undergraduate school. The breakup of, uh, at the time, girl I thought I was going to marry totally devastated me. And like lots of people during those traumas of our life, I just numbed it with swimming, biking, and running. Got very much into triathlon and a football player's genetics and body and was never very good, but had a long stint in endurance sport. 
uh, and then more recently uh, have, have kind of rekindled my, my strength training pursuit since our son was born, um, simply because it, it fits into my life better at this point. So that's the athletic side of things. The more intellectual side of things was I was always a good student. I genuinely enjoyed learning and, and I was very curious. And I also always wanted to be a writer. So in high school, I applied when I decided I wasn't going to play football. I applied to the Medill School of Journalism, which is the mm. uh, most prestigious journalism school here in the States. Mm -hmm. And I got rejected flat out. And like most 17 year olds, I said, oh, I guess I'm not going to be a writer. So I went to study economics. I quit economics because math was way too hard for me. Uh, ended up with a degree in uh, organizational psychology and went on to work for the consulting firm McKinsey and Company, where I stayed as far away from the financial model as I could and as close to the PowerPoint deck, the writing, the storytelling. And what I could have never realized at the time is that that was ultimately my journalism school. It was training me to be a nonfiction writer because there's mm -hmm. so many similarities between putting together um, a report for a McKinsey study as there is for a nonfiction book. You're, you have this thorny problem, you're evaluating it, you're talking to experts, you're doing research, and then you're trying to tell a story around that conclusion. And if you're any good, you also explain how you might be wrong. So I was at McKinsey for a few years. I went back for a graduate degree in public health, and I became less interested in illness and more interested in well-being. And um, that set me on a path to writing these books and to building a coaching practice and all kinds of stuff happened in between. But that's the general grounding for, for how I got to where I am today. Well, I tell you what, we we went through about six questions there with your executive summary. So you you just did a great job of uh, of building the nonfiction part of uh, well, well, hopefully it's not all not hopefully it's all nonfiction, but uh, but the introductory part. So thank you. And 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 uh, before we dive onto the word, I do want to continue to talk about you with one particular subject because I think this is really really important to anchor ourselves, which is your your own journey through OCD. Now, you talk about this extensively in the book. We, we could spend way more than a podcast talking about this subject, um, but you've been very, very open about your navigation of this, the challenges. Uh, can, you, can you first paint a picture of your life with this and, and maybe define what it is? Because I don't think all, all listeners really understand what it is. I think that's a good starting point because there are so many misconceptions around obsessive compulsive disorder uh, that stem from false portrayals in, in movies and, and in literature as um, being a neat freak or needing to be very much organized. Um, but that is not at all what clinical OCD is. So the easiest way to talk about OCD is you have some sort of intrusive thought or feeling and it causes you massive distress. Think anxiety at a 10 out of 10, pit in your stomach despair. And then you do everything possible to get rid of that thought or feeling, which of course only makes the thought or feeling worse. And when this hit me, it was at a very stark onset. I was 30 years old. I had no history of anxiety, depression, any mental health issues. And what did I do? I used the skills that I had which is problem solving and reasoning. So I tried to talk myself out of it or make the feelings go away or reason with them, which I now know only makes them worse. 
Um, so it's this constant tug of war with yourself and no amount of rationalization or cognition is going to hit the off switch. Like it's a totally different approach. Um, so you asked me how I'm doing now I'm doing phenomenally, uh, could change on a dime, but I'd say over the last year, maybe what I would call an OCD spiral of intrusive thoughts and, and feelings occupies one hour every month. Um, that is the result of a year of intensive therapy where I was not doing so well. When you talk about therapy, because again, I think in therapy, a lot of people would um, <laughs> picture you lying on a couch. But um, but in, in many ways, is therapy, in this case, building a toolkit to help you navigate? Is, is a toolkit a good word for that? It's a toolkit, and it is going through... Um, going through fears that are very much irrational. And as I said, no amount of problem solving or reason will fix these. And I know we promised to only spend five minutes so we can get into the word, but I think it's worth explaining a little um, just to get really concrete here. So prior to this, I was always known for actually being really calm and collected under pressure. So bear encounter 10 feet away, everybody's freaking out. And I'm just like, calm down. It's not a black bear. It's a brown bear. Let's just all smile. It's going to be fine. Um, yeah. Never, never really struggled with, with much. And it was as if my brain just completely broke in a sense. And I became obsessed with trying to figure out the meaning of life, which anyone that studied philosophy knows is a really rough question to want certainty on because there is no certainty. And that very quickly spun into, well, if there's is no certainty, does that mean that life is meaningless? And imagine spending eight hours a day stewing on this, feeling despair about it. That was me. And my compulsion was not cleaning my desk or counting to 10. It was trying to answer that question in my mind. So I became obsessed with reading about the meaning of life and trying to construct theories. And if it sounds crazy, it entirely is. That's what makes mental illness, mental illness. Now I'm fortunate that I always maintained insight. So when this happened, there was about a four hour period between the onset and me going to my wife and saying, something is wrong with my brain. This is terrifying. I need help. And I'm very thankful that I had that insight to be able to do that so quickly um, because the longer this stuff lingers, generally the harder it is to undo. Um, the last thing I'll say, because surely there are people out here listening that have OCD or some other kind of anxiety disorder, is that with the right kind of help, these things tend to respond very well to treatment. And a part of the disease, a part of the disorder is your brain telling you that you're going to be like this forever. Your brain is different. No one else could possibly have these intrusive thoughts and feelings, but the evidence is quite to the, the, the opposite of that, like the different polarity, which is actually, they're quite responsive to treatments. And many of the OCD themes that people think are just absolutely crazy are actually really common. So this theme that I had is called existential OCD and thousands of people sit and stew on the same question. Other people become obsessed with the idea that they're going to push someone into traffic or harm someone in public. Mm -hmm to the point where they won't go in public because they just think they're going to have an urge. You have that thought out of nowhere. You think you're crazy. You look at the literature, thousands of people have that. So that is OCD in a nutshell. 
And the treatment is very much about unwinding those fear, fears by exposing yourself to the things that you fear. And being able to live with the uncertainty that maybe there is no meaning of life. Maybe I will push someone into the street. Probably not, but maybe. So it's really about a brain whose certainty switch gets turned on so tightly and you having to unwind it and accept uncertainty. And accompanied by all of these feelings of angst. Because right now talking about it, it's fine. This is a very logical conversation. But in the midst of it, it doesn't feel logical at all. It feels all-consuming. Can I ask you a question that uh, that might be uh, way outside the realm? But do you think your experience of writing peak performance and the passion paradox, did that compound your own personal situation at all? Because they're performance-driven books and they're, you know, you, you, they're, they're introspective, yeah? Yeah, I don't think so. And it's something that I talked about, um, obviously, with, with my therapist, Um who said something very wisely and and that is that looking for a cause or a trigger is kind of just like looking for certainty where there is none, you know? So she mm-hmm. said, of course your books had an effect, but so did your brain. So like everything leading up to this moment in your life potentially had some kind of effect and trying to isolate it in a way is fruitless where it did have an effect is once this was happening, I felt enormous cognitive dissonance because to the world, I'm author of the best-selling book, Peak Performance. The Passion Paradox wasn't out yet, actually, when this was happening. So it was it was Peak Performance, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. which is even I'm a too, worse yeah. title because at least in the Passion Paradox, there's some paradox. Peak Performance is just yeah. crush it. And here I am totally falling to pieces, barely holding on. And that chasm became a huge source of distress that ultimately ended in me saying that if I want to be real as a writer, I just can't keep this inside of me. And I published a story and a very personal essay, just walking through what I had been going through, what I at the time still was going through. And that was an enormous weight off my shoulders. Um, Mm -hmm. And prior to that, I got advice from uh, an old psychiatrist friend who was not treating me, just someone I knew that, that said that a part of, cause I was questioning, like, how can I write on peak performance? How could I say anything? And he said, a part of peak performance is playing through the pain. And that really stuck with me. There is a great one. What my, my last question on it, what is before we move on, I want to ask about support network, um, particularly sort of friends, but, but more than that, even mentors, and the reason for that is that as you sort of highlight it, you're even verbally what you've been saying is this is going on in my brain. It's, as you have navigated out beyond the therapy, did you find yourself leaning into coaches, mentors, or friendship friends to, to help? Was that framework important in a case like this? Yes and no. I would say that the... Yes, is other people who have experienced something similar that get it, very helpful. People who haven't had this experience, less so, simply because it's so bizarre when you're in it. The analogy that I like to use is I used to think I knew what anxiety or depression was. And I was on one side of the river and I looked at the other side and I saw these people and I said, oh, that's anxiety, that's depression. But then when you're actually in the river, you realize that what you thought it was is so far from the truth. 
And mm -hmm. the support came from people that had either been in the river before or were currently navigating the river. Now, unfortunately, I guess in my personal case, fortunately, for the world as a whole, unfortunately, these things aren't that common. So it wasn't like I had to go try to find the five people that have had this experience. There are thousands, millions of people that have had this or similar experiences. Um, and that was quite helpful. And then, yeah, of course, having just really close friends that you can talk about stuff with, even if they don't understand it, is, um, is huge. I mean, you can't go through life alone. Impossible. <laughs> No, it's not. But there's a there's a very selfish reason that I asked that question, and um, and I'm going to reveal it now, which is we we have a lot of coaches that listen to the show, and uh, and a lot of leaders that listen to the show, and I I think that one of the um, one of the challenges for coaches or leaders is to think that they think that they have to have every answer, and this is just a great example. Is imagine if I were coaching in you, navigating it, how can I as a dumb coach that I am, really help you. I, my best route to help you is to try and help you get the appropriate support, but I can't lead you through something like this. So there was a... Yeah, so to be able to drop that notion of you need to solve it and, and to create a safe space for the person to share what they're feeling in a holding environment, and then also as you identified, to be able to say, hey, this is out of my wheelhouse, and there exactly. are people whose wheelhouse this is in, let's get you to the right support. And I haven't looked at this, I haven't run any empirical studies, but I do think that there is a relationship between obsessiveness, obsessive compulsive disorder, and high performance in sport. Um, because it is this craving for control and for metrics and for certainty. And the connection that I wonder about more so than my book Peak Performance was actually was my pursuit of sport just kind of a controlled way to express this temperament of mine that would just wind tighter, 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 tighter. Um, and that is something that it doesn't really matter because it doesn't change the outcome, but I think it's a part of my temperament. And I think these qualities like obsessiveness, like drive, they are your superpower until they get in the way or, or, or hopefully they don't, but then just being aware that some of these things that we think drive performance that do drive performance can also get in the way. And the last example I'll say to make it really concrete is you take an Olympic swimmer and I know you have much more experience with this caliber of swimming than me. And that Olympic swimmer might be traveling. They might be going to a family members for the holidays, so on and so forth. And they've got to find a pool to do their workout. And if they don't do their mm -hmm. workout, they feel distressed, they feel guilty, they feel anxious. And what is the workout? It is sitting in the pool for anywhere between an hour and three hours, staring at a line, swimming back and forth. Now, if you take that out of the context of Olympic swimming, that's OCD. It's some kind of distress that you then solve by doing this repetitive behavior. But society celebrates it, and it's an Olympic swimming champion. And then we wonder why so many Olympians, particularly in these solo repetitive sports, struggle with mental illness afterwards, because a lot of the qualities that drove them to be great when taken out of that experimental or not experimental, excuse me, when taken out of that like little silo can blow up on you. So there's a ton of nuance here. 
And um, I, I just think it's important to realize that these traits aren't good or bad. They just are. And they can be both good and bad, depending on the context and depending on how much control you have over them versus they have over you. Well, I can tell you from personal experience, I'll say two things to that. The first is that when I was a swimmer, my I loved going home to England. I was obviously based over here swimming in college, trying to make the Olympic team. I didn't make the Olympic team, but um, it was a source of massive anxiety. And uh, and my reaction, by the world, by the way, was I couldn't swim, so therefore I would get destructive and I would overdrink and overeat and everything else. That was so. Th there's a common trait. I would also extend it outside of sport just to help people join the dots. A great example of some tech founders that have found great success and on the back side of it real challenge of hang on i've had this thing that's absolutely anchored my focus now i've made my x y and z gazillions uh oh what happens now yeah and how do you learn to hold everything a little bit more lightly without sacrificing performance and <laughs> That I think is maybe the perfect segue into the, as you like to say, the true meat and potatoes, but that's what this is all about. So I don't want to let go of my intellectual rigor and my curiosity and my questioning. I write books that are half science and the other half philosophy, but I need to know when I can grip tight and when to let go, because if I don't, I end up down this rabbit hole. Well, let's do it. Let's talk about it. And I think that as we navigate this this investigation into the word performance, we're obviously going to lean heavy from your book, The Practice of Groundedness. So I guess to help us frame this part of it, for those that are not familiar with your work, at least yet, because I'm sure people are going to purchase the book after this, can you give us the little, quote, elevator pitch of the book or, or maybe just a, a couple of minutes around the key lessons and takeaways? Mm. So the the main problem that the book tries to address is um, a term that I've coined heroic individualism, which is this ongoing game of one-upsmanship against self and others, where the goalpost is always 10 yards down the field. And you think that eventually you'll arrive and be content. But then when you get there, you realize that you're not. And the antidote that I propose is establishing a feeling of groundedness, which has you be where you are present, but also content and easeful where you are. And of course, the great paradox is that doesn't turn off performance. It actually frees most people in most situations to perform better. So from a place of heroic individualism, you think that you have to get this thing out in front of you and then you'll be whole. And for many people, that makes them very tight. And most people mm -hmm. don't perform well from a place of fear or avoidance or tightness. Whereas if you truly feel confident and grounded where you are, that opens you up to perform more from a place of freedom, from a place of love. So that's the first reason that it's very beneficial for performance. And the second reason is in heroic individualism, even if you get there, then the day after sucks. There's this quote from Ray Allen, the phenomenal NBA three-point shooter who said the hardest day of his life was the day after he won an NBA championship. Because in his mind, he had told himself that if I just get this thing, that'll be it. I'll be happy. I'll be content. I'll be at ease. And he woke up the next morning and he still felt empty. And what groundedness is trying to do is trying to say like that craving, that external reward, that wanting, it's a part of our nature and we shouldn't shy away from it. We should acknowledge that we're never going to arrive. 
That doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive, but the point of our striving should be the striving itself. In very purple patchy in terms, this is really about learning to live in the process instead of needing that outcome. Yeah, there's there's so many purple patchy sayings that come out of that. So, so I'm just going to hold back from saying it. Although I do want to start with something that I have talked a lot about in the past, which is the connection and link between high-performing athletes and business executives. And you and I chatting here, of course, we weren't straight in for that with the jugular, but, you know, go through and say, these are the 10 traits of high-performing executives. And look, they mirror exactly to the 10 traits of high-performing athletes. But I want to go the reverse. And with this in mind that we've talked about so far, I'd love to explore some of the common and shared pitfalls or weaknesses or, or things that have potential to hold high performers back? Mm. Your thoughts? I think that they're often qualities that are very helpful at some point, and then they're held on to for too long. So an example of this is grit, which mm. is hugely important for the path to success, the ability to hang in there, tough things out, passion and perseverance. That said, there are times when the right thing to do is to quit or to adjust or to change paths. And if you are so identified with grit, you might end up staying on path A for an extra year, five years, 10 years, when in fact, the move was to go to path B. Now, equally rampant is the opposite, which is getting off path A one year, five year, 10 years too soon. And I can never say what the right answer is for any person. I hardly know what the right answer is for myself. So it's not that these are necessarily pitfalls, it's the either or thinking. And perhaps mm -hmm. if folks take anything away from, from this part of the discussion, it is that we tend to think that a psychological tool for performance works in all circumstances, but it doesn't. It's just a tool. And starting to see things that way can help you wrestle with your own path. So grit is a really good tool for some circumstances, and switching is a really good tool for other circumstances. And I think that wisdom is really learning what tools to use when. So that's one example, this notion of grit versus quit. Uh, I think another example is distraction. So mm -hmm. there are times when actually distracting yourself is good. Um, it gets you out of your head, particularly if you're dealing with something that is in a very contained environment where you know there's a start and an end. And if it helps you to endure pain to distract yourself, certainly as an athlete, it can make sense. But there are other times when that distraction becomes a crutch and what you actually need to do is lean into your body and feel what you're feeling and read yourself. And a very close cousin to that is, um, I was joking with you earlier over email, uh, these digital device trackers and metrics. Metrics help until they get in the way. So lots of people don't have an intuitive sense of how to feel their body. And to say, hey, go run this hard repeat just by feel to someone like that, they don't know. The it's flip side is they use that tool to learn and then they become attached to the tool and then suddenly they're going to have the best day of their life, but they're scared because the tool tells them that they're going a little bit too hard. 
or the opposite. The tool tells them that they're recovered, even though they feel like shit. So they go out and do the workout and they tear a hamstring. So it's just another example of this non-dual relationship with all these performance concepts. So it's a very long-winded way of thinking. I don't think the pitfall is any one thing. I think the pitfall is rigid thinking instead of seeing these types of things as tools that certain times help and certain times don't. As a, uh, as a mild tangent off of that, um, the nicest or most useful way in an athletic sense, uh, I, I can't help but go on this tangent, when we think about metrics and gadgets, because uh, a lot of listeners are athletes and they have their power meters or GPS monitors on their on their um, on their bike and in their on their wrist for their run, and then they have their heart rate monitors to measure internal cost, etc. And we always talk about the inner animal, so developing this sense of feel. You know who Steven Seiler is? He's a great physiologist, uh, American guy based out, based out of Norway, and I, I had him on the show. Listeners, you should go back and listen to that that episode if you haven't. But I thought he explain the use of these gadgets in in the nicest way possible where he said you're a pilot you're looking you're flying the plane you're looking out of the the windshield or whatever you would say and the gadgets are your your sort of heads up display so you're feeling everything you're flying but you have a measure of your output the work that you're doing and that's your power and pace. And then you have this measure of your internal cost, but you are the pilot ultimately. And framing that becomes actually really useful. Um, again, we're off subject, but I love but that. I, just, I know I Steven Seiler um, a little, I've quoted his work in, in peak performance quite a bit in uh, just a wonderful physiologist. So I'm not surprised that he had such an elegant way to think about this. It, it was really useful. And com coming from something else as well, I want to ask you, uh, with with people that I bet a lot of people have read or embraced the concept of having a growth mindset. Uh, and in fact, one of the purple patch sayings is evolve or die. But when, you know, you're either growing and evolving or you're, you're wilting sort of thing. But when you think about those phrases, maybe we, we might dismantle those phrases right now, growth mindset. I think a lot of us assume that by having a growth mindset, it, it means driving forward, striving to agree, achieve greater and greater things. So I would love your thoughts on that mindset, growth mindset, or how it is viewed in the context of your groundedness. I'm going to pull up the work of um, a philosopher named James Carse. Are you familiar with Carse at all? Mm -hmm. So he wrote about finite and infinite games. And finite games are games where there are winners and losers and there are established rules. And the point is to win the game. Infinite games are the whole point is just to keep playing. There are no winners or losers. So a triathlon race is a finite game. Being yep. a triathlete is an intimate, excuse me, an infinite and an intimate, infinite, but an, right. in, an infinite game. And I think that when you narrowly look at growth mindset as a finite game tool, it's much less powerful than when you look at it as an infinite game tool. Because as a finite game tool, you win or lose. And if you have a poor string or you lose a bit, well, what am I supposed to do? I'm not still growing. And guess what, listeners? 
unless you're hitting up anti-aging clinics, at some point you're going to get worse. It's just how it works. So if your growth mindset is limited to finite games, when that happens, you'll really hurt. Whereas if you can zone out and think of yourself as a lifelong athlete and growing in that regard, then a growth mindset allows you to be flexible and open for your whole life. So I like to think of these finite games as important. Not that the race doesn't matter, not that the promotion or book sales don't matter. It does, but they're still just milestones on this broader thing, which is for most people, some form of self-mastery or meaning or adventure. And um, I think that framing it that way is really, really helpful. Yeah, that's not the answer. Uh, well, I didn't anticipate any answer, but that, that's, a, that's a wonderful perspective. I've never thought about it in, in terms like that. But, uh, and, and I want to be really clear because I know that there are also going to be some, some national and world-class athletes listening that you coach. People hear this and they're like, oh, woo-woo. The finite games matter a lot. Yep. But how you relate to them and just knowing, even if it's only with 2% of you, that ultimately this is about the infinite game, I really think that's one of the most important capacities for resilience and for a growth mindset. Because if the whole game becomes the finite mindset, then the wins, you're empty the next day because like Ray Allen, you thought you'd arrive and you don't. The losses, you're despairing, you're crushed. And my goal with groundedness and using this metaphor isn't that you're not crushed, but instead of being 100% crushed, maybe you're 88% crushed. And that 12% of you that knows it's an infinite game, that's what gives you the resilience to bounce back. Yeah, that's great. So, so let's move on. Let's, uh, let, let's come to one of my favorite words as it, as it arrives out of performance, which is patience. And uh, I cannot help begin, begin to talk about this phrase because as soon as I read this section, just this, and I was like, it's spot on without even reading anymore. It's like, this is it. This is absolutely spot on. Be patient to get there faster. And uh, I just, it, it made me jump straight to the conversations that I have all the time with highly ambitious athletes, particularly with those that may be leaning on your last answer there, are stuck in a finite mindset. And uh, they're stuck in this, you know, plateaus, burnout, injuries, etc., and so many are anchored around these big goals to a very specific event. I've signed up for Ironman XYZ in eight months. My goal is qualif qualification to the Hawaii Ironman. I've got my family all in, me as the athlete I'm on, and I'm willing to move heaven and earth to make this happen. You're making me so anxious right now. <laughs> exactly. I'm sorry. I'm, gonna... <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> but can you provide your perspective and thoughts on the uh, and I guess in many ways you have but this event driven approach I think we've got to do that and then expand yeah. up to you know be patient to get there faster it's counterintuitive at the same time it's perfect so the the short answer is you don't want the race to determine your fitness you want the fitness to determine the race um, having this external thing tell you what you need to do when doesn't make sense because life happens and this happens so far outside of triathlon. Dan, Danny Kahneman um, won a Nobel Prize uh, for what he called the planning fallacy, which basically says that for any big project, and he was particularly in his research looking at construction, so building a bridge, building a house, it always takes 40% longer than you think. Well, what is an Ironman triathlon if not a big project? So to think that, oh, I've got this race in eight months, I'm going to train. Well, what you're not realizing 
is the cancer diagnosis that your father has, or the friend that gets really sick and needs you in a time of distress, or a pandemic, or the surprise pregnancy, all these things that happen. And if you get way too rigid on a goal, then what happens is you rush towards it. And as you alluded to, you end up getting injured, you get sick, you burn out. Now, this notion of getting patient to get there faster is really about compounding gains. So if you can stop one rep short today, it allows you to pick up where you left off in a nice groove and a nice rhythm. And that's day to day, week to week, month to month. That's what they pay you the big bucks for. Good training allows you to stop one rep short to get to that line every once in a while to cross it with appropriate recovery, but so that you can keep going. Now, this is very different than posting your guts out workout on Instagram or your all nighter at the office or all these heroic efforts that we see. But what we don't see is the toll of that heroic effort one week, one month, one year later. And anybody can crush themselves for a day and post it on social media. Anyone, you and I could do it right now. It'd be a blast. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't get you to a long-term goal in a very effective, efficient way. So I like to think of this notion of, um, of, of compounding, and, and I'll repeat myself, that, that you want to stop a little short today so that you can pick up tomorrow. And this requires restraint, A, and it requires taking a longer view. Because I'll go to my own life in writing. If I wanted to get the most output out of myself as a writer over the next two months, I would write for 10 hours a day, slam three Red Bulls, do some kind of kettlebell swing workout for 10 minutes, ignore my wife, ignore my kid, ignore my dog. I would write a ton and probably pretty good stuff over the next three months. But if I want to be a writer for six months, nine months, one year, 10 years, a decade, two decades, I guess 10 years is a decade, three decades, that's a terrible strategy. So it's also really important to identify the time horizon because what's efficient and fast in a very compressed time horizon is often inefficient and slow in a longer time horizon. And the big projects in our life, be it in sport, be it in relationships, be it in the traditional workplace, they tend to be big projects. And I think when we define them rigidly, we get into this game of crushing ourselves but that's no way to pursue long-term sustainable performance. Yeah, I, I think that the, the word there, the longer-term lens, I often come around a singular word. I think both of us are quite similar in looking to find words that you can anchor thoughts around in an educational way. The word that I often hang on to is, is perspective because uh, it, it, in an athletic sense and, and even as a sort of business leader, coming up a level out of the weeds, coming up consistently and understanding, making decisions, both in what has happened in the days or weeks or months prior, and then, of course, where you want to go over the days, weeks and months. T to me, that word perspective is, um, is a useful one to help people. It's like, okay, I'm coming out and I'm making decisions, not down in those weeds, which is day to day. And of course, that helps with the past failure side, particularly around workouts and stuff like that. And it requires um, so much restraint. And I know that you know this, but it is so hard when you're feeling good and the workout is five by 800, not to run the sixth. And athletes play all kinds of weird mind games. Well, six is an even number. 
And often, I know you talk about this so elegantly, it stems from insecurity. So you're trying to prove to yourself that I can do that sixth. Mm -hmm. And on that day, you can. But if you get into the habit of doing that, it always catches up to you and bites you in the ass. Exactly. And um, no, I I think that's exactly it. It's a lack of confidence. By the way, there's another component which we won't get into, which is people that continually look at others that what they're doing and drives them to do that sixth workout because John is doing it. And it's that comparative side is obviously stemming in a a lack of confidence as well. But but I want to come back with it because there's a tension here that I think that we, we have to explore because ultimately big goals are, are good. You know, like there's, there's having, having a goal, having a, an event, I'm signing up and I, I have signed up to the alt route, this big multi-day riding thing. And it's, it's a commitment. It helps with accountability. It's I'm doing it with friends and my brothers. And so it's motivation, it's camaraderie. And it, and it creates this lightning rod for me, for us, for you to, to sort of guide and, and anchor a program around. So there's a tension between that and balancing, embrace the journey, take the long-term perspective. It might not happen. So how do you sort of, have you got any tools or suggestions to help people with that really healthy tension of embrace the journey versus event chasing? Mm. And, And I would expand that beyond just sport because it's no different in writing a book. The goal is your book's going to be published. And if you're so focused on that, then you miss the whole journey of writing the thing. So Mm -hmm. I think the number one piece of advice I have, and it's the simplest, but often people overlook simple, is to do it with other people and have fun. Man, is it easier to do hard things when you're doing it with other people and you're having fun. And if you're doing that, and something happens, you're a lot more likely to have the flexibility or the patience to adjust the plan and to change the goal because you're enjoying the process. Who cares if I have to race three months from now? And I shouldn't say it that lightly. It hurts because I've been in that situation. It sucks, but you can hold it a little bit more lightly because you're having fun, you're, you're growing, you're learning with other people. Whereas if it's just this solitary effort and it's so focused on, I'm gonna do this race so I can post it on my Instagram or get the medal, well, then you become attached to it. Um, And like we talked about with the pitfall, it's like that goal works until it gets in the way. And I can't say what that point is, but just having that language is so helpful because then you can ask yourself as an athlete, as a writer, as a vice president at a big corporation, I want to chase this goal, but I need to be mindful that this goal works until it gets in the way. And then coaching, which obviously you and I believe in, um, it's really hard to have self-awareness when you're in a situation that is emotionally charged, such as chasing a big goal. And sometimes it takes someone else that can see a little bit more clearly to say, hey, we need to adjust and you have to trust me. Well, it's interesting. So so I'm going to save my, my thoughts and further questions on community and sharing the journey because I I am going to ask about that in the future but you you mentioned something earlier as well around this is really really hard and the first thing I thought of there it's interesting you bring out coaching is is the value of a coach Uh, and in fact the other day I saw if we if we think about sort of iconic sports stars and let's take one that is maybe quite polarizing Michael Jordan 
and you think about him and he's obviously got the reputation of being really, really hard on teammates and very, very driven. But there, there was a quote that I saw from him of like, what's, what's your sort of special sort your secret? And he said, I was really coachable. And if you look at the people that have enduring greatness and let's make them up, Michael will not make them up. But Michael Phelps, uh, Serena Williams, Cristiano Ronaldo, blah, blah, blah. Go on with all of these sort of iconic sports stars. Oh, that you have they're all every time if there is one thing they're all really coachable and because they realize it's really hard to maintain coming back to my work perspective and i think that i think that people think of coaching as just knowledge and someone knows something that i don't and they're going to teach me and that's only half the value of a coach the other half is perspective so I've now written three books on sustainable excellence. People pay me way too much money to coach them, and I have a coach. Not because she's telling me anything that I don't know, but because she can see the stuff that I can't see. When I get so fused with the situation, I know enough to know that I can't see clearly. And that is the value, whether it's a coach or a mentor or a group of people that are training with you, they can all provide that kind of perspective. It's such a perfect word for this because that's exactly what it is. And in the psychological research, it is called self-distancing, which is just another way mm. of saying perspective, which is basically creating some distance between your current experience of what you're going through and a deeper, more wise sense of yourself. So the two ways that are um, that are, are are empirically proven to help with this is to pretend that a really close friend is in the exact same situation as you. What advice would you give to that friend? And then take that advice. And then the other is to imagine an older, wiser version of you looking back on your current self. What advice would you give to your current self? And then take that advice. In both of those things, the sole point is to create perspective. And I'll say one more thing on this because it, it I've used this. I I've only coached a handful of athletes and it's never been their physical performance, only, only psychological. And I once was coaching a world-class runner and I will not name her. And she was hobbling out the door, limping down the stairs to do a workout because her proximal, her upper hamstring was strained. And I remember saying, I'm just going to call her Rachel, not her actual name. Rachel, I want you to visualize one of your training partners hopping out the door limping down the stairs to go do a mile repeat workout. What would you tell your friend? Rachel's like, I tell her, don't do the workout. You're going to blow up your hamstring. It's better to take a week off or two weeks off now than blow up your season. So then why are you limping out the door to do your workout? Well, because there was no perspective. So um, it's a very concrete example of how, again, what researchers call self-distancing, what you aptly call perspective can, can work. And what a coach can do is give you that perspective without you rationalizing, you know, your way. Well, maybe I tell my friend to do the workout. A coach can say, bullshit, don't do the workout. What a, what a great uh, perspective. So, Brad, what, what we're going to do here is we're going to stop. And everyone's going to say, no, 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 we want to hear more. Well, luckily, we will hear more. But we're going to stop it here for this week. And we're going to carry on the conversation. We're going to break this interview into two parts. And so, so far, so fun. I think that's uh, our uh, our summary for So Good. But we're going to come back right next week and we're going to carry on the conversation. So 
thanks so much for the conversation so far. And I guess I'll, I'll quote, see you next week. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Purple Patch Podcast. If you like what you hear, we'd really appreciate it if you share with your friends and even go the extra mile and head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate and review the show. The Apple Podcast link is in the show notes. Your support and positive reviews go a huge way in increasing our visibility and also the exposure to time-starved people everywhere who want to integrate sport into life and ultimately thrive. Don't forget, you can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Cheers!